0: Well, if you've been with us any time over the fall, uh, you know, and you can see up there on the overhead, we're going through the book of Acts, the world's greatest construction project. But today and next week, I wanted to spend a couple weeks going over one of the uh, best topics for a believer, and that is the topic of Thanksgiving. Uh, Just to help you with that, I put it in the weekly last week, and I've got some handouts there on the front table, but... Uh, Dr. Paul Tripp, uh, who is an excellent biblical counselor, is putting together a daily Thanksgiving devotional starting tomorrow uh, through the 28th. It's, he calls it a, th- a time for us to remember all the good things God has gracios- graciously done for us. And if uh, you're interested in that, there is on the bottom left here the website, crossway.org slash group slash Thanksgiving. I plan on doing it. I'd love for you to join me. I've been looking forward to this series since I decided to do it because Thanksgiving is one of those things that can um, just fall off our radar. And so I wanted to treat it two weeks, one in the old and one in the new. Uh, If you're here today and you've ever wandered off from the Lord Uh, gone down a crooked path, a path that you thought was uh, the path to go, a path that you may have been in rebellion to the Lord, if you've ever wandered off from God and made your way back, this sermon is for you. Uh, If you've ever been held captive, addicted to any uh, sin, this sermon is for you. If you're here today and you've suffered because of your own foolishness, this sermon is for you. And if you're here today and you've been humbled, Uh, You had great courage in your soul, but you've been humbled because of your pride. This sermon uh, is for you. Father, this sermon is for me. This sermon is for every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ because believing in Him, we give thanks to you for all the wonderful things you do. You're a God of varied grace. You're a God of new mercies. Every single morning, they are fresh. And so I pray as we look into your Old Testament this week and into the New Testament next week, might you uh, ignite in us again a thankful heart. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last Sunday, our uh, small group ended for the semester. We had a little Thanksgiving appetizer, as one person had said. Uh, We had a good old-fashioned pop providence, and people were told to bring foods from their culture where they grew up. And so we had uh, Tex-Mex from us. We had real live Mexican frijoles. They were good. They were really good. We had a tater tot casserole from the Midwest. Uh, From the deep south, we had chicken and dumplings and uh, some gumbo and uh, all sorts of desserts just mixed up with a cup of love. And uh, afterward, I had to keep pacing If you've been to my house, the kitchen, in the living room, because I didn't want to sit down on the couch and fall asleep from all the goodness that was in my belly. And I'm certain that that's what you'll do here uh, in a few weeks uh, or in a week from this Thursday, that you'll have more than enough food and lots of fun with family and friends. A week from this Thursday is Thanksgiving, and there's lots of articles on the Internet about where this thanksgiving holiday originated some people say it was the commonwealth in virginia in 1610 most of us say 1621 plymouth rock that's what we were brought up on right the pilgrims we celebrate thanksgiving they came over they uh, weathered a winter squanto taught them how to fish for eel and plant corn i mean everybody's got eel at thanksgiving right that that's going to be on my plate this year that's good in 1700, we, we, we know that it was recognized in an official holiday, but there was no date given to it. And so many people uh, were celebrating it whenever they want. And for all the marketing departments in the 1700s, that just wasn't good. And so 1863, Abe Lincoln, in the midst of the Civil War, said the last Thursday of November would be the official day of Thanksgiving. And here is some of his proclamation. I just want to read it to you. It ought to be read by all children in school. It's good, old-fashioned American history. This year that is drawing towards its close has been filled with the blessings of fruitful fields and healthful skies. To these bounties which are so constantly enjoyed that we are prone to forget the source from which they come. Others have been added, which are so ex- of so extraordinary a nature that they cannot fail to penetrate and soften even the heart which is habitually insensible to the ever-watchable providence of Almighty God. Wouldn't that be good to be? I mean, that's we should read that in school. This is American history, right? We should read this in schools. He goes on there and gives sentence after sentence, reasons in the midst of a civil war to be thankful. And he ends with this: they, those gifts, are gracious gifts of the Most High God who. While dealing with us in anger for our sins, hath, I love that word, hath, nevertheless remembered mercy. It has seemed to me fit and proper that we should be solemnly, reverently, and gratefully acknowledged as one heart and one voice by the whole American people. I do therefore invite my fellow citizens in every part of the United States, and also those who are at sea and those who are sojourning in foreign lands, to set apart and observe the last Thursday of November next as the day of thanksgiving and praise to our beneficent Father who dwelleth in the heavens. I mean, this is good American history that should be read in every classroom. I recommend to them that while offering up the ascriptions justly due to Him, for such singular deliverances and blessings, they do also with humble penitence, for a national perverseness and disobedience. Again, this is just good stuff to be read by children in schools. Commend to his tender care all those who have become widows, orphans, mourners, or sufferers in the lamentable civil strife in which we are unavoidably engaged, and fervently implore the interposition of the Almighty Hand to heal the wounds of a nation and to restore it as soon as may be consistent with the divine purposes to the full enjoyment of peace, harmony, tranquility and union. That, my friends, is good American history. And later on, during the Depression, FDR made it the the fourth Sunday because he wanted to promote the holiday shopping season. Whether it was 1610 or 1611 and you put all those facts together, we don't know for certain when it came into being. And some have forgotten Lincoln's original intent, but to know the origin, that is the place where things begin, the concept of thanksgiving is of utmost importance to us. And as in all of life, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and you know Him, you know that all things begin and end with Jesus, with God, with the Trinity. And so today we're going to look at the necessity of thanksgiving, and we're going to look at some reasons To be thankful. So turn with me, if you would, to Psalm 107 in your Bibles. Psalm 107. If you notice, in Psalm 107, right above it, it says Book 5. These Psalms are divided into five books. Uh, Some say to mirror the law. And in this book of Psalms, you get some various ones in Psalms 107 to 110. You will get the Psalms of Passover in 113 to 18. You will get the classic Psalm on the law in Psalm 119. You get the Songs of Ascent in Psalms 20, 120 through 134, some Davidic Psalms in 138 through 145. And as we were singing today, and as was flashed up there, Psalm 148 is part of the Hallel Psalms of Psalm 146 to 150. And what ends with this climax of praise begins begins with the wisdom of thanksgiving. If I were a Puritan, I would call this the wise duty of thanksgiving, a look at the multiplied grace of a sovereign God. If you see on the outline up there, we will see God's multiplied grace. You'll see a call to thanksgiving and some causes for thanksgiving. And then you will see God's sovereign reign. You will see the God of thanksgiving and the godly, that is you and I, in thanksgiving. Thanks, thanks, thank, thankful, thanksgiving, mentioned 163 times in Scripture, defined as the act of giving thanks, an expression to God, broken down that, that is the attitude of being thankful. It, it, it's, it's an attitude of appreciation. And then it's an action of acknowledgement. And so if you put those together, you get thanksgiving as the attitude of appreciation that is seen in the action of acknowledgement, that Gratitude glorifies God. And when we're not thankful, we're like what Paul says in Romans 1. You don't need to turn there. Merely listen to when Paul's describing those who have gone away from God and done their own thing, calling upon God's perfect and righteous wrath upon them. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. Thanksgiving is very, very important. And if you were to do a study on the words, thank, thanks, thankful, thanksgiving, in Scripture, of those 163 times, only two times in Scripture. Do you ever see a human giving thanksgiving to another human? 97% of the time it is Paul always, I thank my God for you. Now, I'm not here trying to change the way you go about and saying thank you to somebody, but it is interesting for us to wrestle with the Scriptures and see that 97% of the time I should be saying to my wife, I am thankful to God for you because it puts the acknowledgment where it is justly deserved upon God Himself first and foremost. And so beginning in the sacrifices in Leviticus and ending with the elders' worship in Revelation 11, Listen to this, the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sat on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God saying, we give thanks to you, the Lord Almighty, who is and who was for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. That is what's going to happen. But long before this, a songwriter in the book of Psalms composed a piece for us that helps us understand the magnitude of thanksgiving, the multi-varied grace of God. And we see this in Psalm 107. It begins with the call of the redeemed. Oh, verse 1, oh. It's an exclamation. It's not meant to be gone, oh. It's, oh, it's one of excitement. It draws attention. Give thanks. That is, acknowledge out of a heart of appreciation what has been done. Give thanks to the Lord. That is the object of our excited acknowledgement. Why? For He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. What you see in that first verse is a call For the wise to give thanks to God. Why? Because He is good. That is His character. That is His essence. God is good. And His conduct, His steadfast love or His loving kindness endures forever. It goes on forever. His goodness is seen in His forever love. I have a friend who is a missionary in Africa and he says, God is good all the time and all the time. God is good. That is the call. And in verse 2, Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. This is a requirement for us. The redeemed of the Lord. Those who have been bought back, who have been rescued, who have been delivered. The redeemed. He who has redeemed from trouble and gathered from the lands. That those who are troubled all over the world from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south. In the immediate context, this could have been a psalm that was sung in Ezra chapter 3 when they had come back into the land. God had redeemed them from Babylon in the east. He had redeemed them from Philistines in the west. He had redeemed them from Assyria to the north, and He had redeemed them from Egypt to the south. God brought His people back just as He had promised, and He didn't miss anyone. He didn't miss anyone. The redeemed from all over ought to give thanks to the good God whose love goes on forever. That is the call. But why? What are some of the causes? What are some of the reasons we know that God is good and His steadfast love endures forever? How do we see this good God work and how do we see His forever love? In 4 through 32, you're going to get four. Four reasons. And I bet you money you can find yourself, if not certainly in one of them, in all four. Starting in verse 4, it said, some wandered. Of the redeemed, some. There are many types of people, many types of redeemed from different situations. And I assure you, you will find yourself in here. And I've talked about this being of God's varied grace. I, I like that varied grace. I, I don't, didn't come up with it on my own. Rarely do I come up with anything on my own. But Peter says, good stewards of God's varied grace, God's varied grace, that His grace is not just in for one in particular person. There are all types of people who need to experience God's redemptive grace. Some wandered. That is, they, they went astray. They, they were on a path and then they got off the path. And they wandered in, in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Off the straight and narrow, they sought to find their own way. They wandered in desert places, trying to make it on their own. They go with their own sense, their son, own understanding. And though they knew God, they did not acknowledge Him. And where did that leave them, verse 5? Hungry and thirsty. Their soul fainted within them. I think of the prodigal son who said, You know what? I need need the money that is, quote, rightly due me. And he goes and he wastes it. He wanders away from his father and he wastes it. The NAS says he squandered it on loose living. I know that because that is my testimony. And he hires himself out and he's working and he sees that the pigs even got more and better food than him and he came to his senses and he said, I will go home to my father. When you're hungry and you're thirsty and your soul is faint within you, what do you do? Verse 6, it tells us, Then they, the some, the some who had wandered, cried to the Lord. In their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. God listened to their cry. He didn't lecture them, nor did he lament over them. And what did he do? Verse 7 He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. He led them. God leads his people. He is not our co pilot, He's not a life coach, He's not a personal advisor, He is a leader. And he leads us in straight ways. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. and Do not lean on your own understanding. But in all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. By the straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. They went out, they were lost, and he brought them back in. What should they do? Verse 8 says it, let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Why? For he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. If the call is to give thanksgiving to a sovereign God of multiplied grace, the first reason is that the longing soul is satisfied. The wandering soul is led, or you could put it this way, God leads the wayward. Some of us wandered off from God. Some of us were brought up in the ways of the Lord, but we wandered. We did our own thing and we got lost and we got hungry and when we cried out to the Lord, He was there to lead us home to a place of safety. That is what the idea of city means in this context. To a place of provision that He gave these people food. He brought the Israelites back from wandering, he brought them into a city, into a land flowing with milk and honey. And what happened to them in reality and in history, it actually happened, is a picture for us. Paul says it in Romans. What happened to them is an example for us because there are many in here who wandered who wandered from the Lord, thinking you knew your own way, thinking your smarts, your morality, your people skills will get you to where you want to go. But you, like some of us, ended up lost, hungry, and in need. And then you cried out to the Lord, and He led you. Let those people give thanks to the Lord. Some of you wandered, but not all of us. There are different types of people, and in 10 through 16, you get another example of a reason for us to praise God. Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons. Some wandered, but some were held captive. They were in the dark. They were dying. Why? Verse 11 tells us, For they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. They had the truth in front of them, and they said, I want nothing to do with this. And they went on their own way, and they found themselves in prison. Verse 12, so he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. The he there is God. Just like he promised Israel, if you rebel against my law, I will remove you from the land. And they fell down with none to help. What, what does a prisoner do? Shackled. You, you can go nowhere. The only thing you can do is what they did in verse 13. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of the darkness and the shadow of death, death and burst their bonds apart. God released them. God freed them. And they cried out. In spite of their rejecting God's word, God freed them from prison. What should they do? Verse 13, or excuse me, 15. Let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His wondrous works to the children of men. For He shatters the doors of bronze and He cuts into the bars of iron. Reason number two. Maybe some of you weren't wanderers, but some of you were imprisoned. Reason number two, the imprisoned soul is set free. God frees prisoners. Like Peter was freed in the book of Acts, prisoners are released who cry out to God. That's literally what happened to Samson. He was shackled and he cried out to God. Maybe you're here today and you've never been in a physical prison, but you've been shackled according to what the New Testament calls you've been enslaved to various lusts and passions. I love that phrase because it talks about various lusts and you match that with God's varied grace and some of us were addicted to porn. Some of us were addicted to alcohol. Some of us were enslaved to selfishness, enslaved to gossip, enslaved to... To people pleasing, we were so worried about what others think. And God freed us. John says in chapter 8, Abide in my word. He's speaking, he's recording Jesus' words. Abide in my word, and you shall know the truth. and The truth shall set you free. Paul said in Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. And Peter says we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, where God's own possession, we're owned by Him, that we may proclaim His excellencies, He who brought us out of the darkness. He freed us from the darkness to walk and to proclaim His excellencies in the marvelous light. Paul says in Colossians, Colossians 1, you've been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of His beloved Son. Maybe you were shackled in debt because you thought money would be the answer. Or maybe you were shackled in lusts because you thought pleasure was the answer. God's Various grace conquers, frees, and releases our various lusts and passions. And God frees us from the deepest of all self-love, the love of self, the love of sin, the love of what it can immediately provide in in the short term, but long term it enslaves us and we feel like we can't get out. But then we cry to the Lord and He frees us. God frees us. Not so we can make much of ourselves, but we can make much of him. Which is what Charles Wesley did in the great hymn, And Can It Be? Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night, thine eye diffused a quickening ray, I woke the dungeon flamed with lights. My chains fell off, my heart was free, I rose, went forth, and followed. Some have wandered. Some have rebelled and been shackled in their own sin. But there are some of us, verse 17 through 22, who are just plain foolish. Some were fools for their sinful ways. That's what the psalmist says. Through their sinful ways and because of their iniquities, they suffered affliction. Let's just admit it. Some of us, and I include myself in this group. I I really include myself in all four of them. It's not funny. <laughs> it, is, it is seriously joyful to know that he saved a wanderer, a rebel, and here, one who was foolish. Some of us were just plain dumb and did our own thing and we suffered for it. It's not that everything in the world, when suffering comes, it's not because of sin, but sometimes our misery is our own fault. So much so that in verse 18 they loathed any kind of food and they drew near to the gates of death. While some wandered and found no food, there were some who in their own foolish rebellion didn't even want food. Have you ever been there? Have you ever gotten to a point where you just can't eat? And you feel like life's closing in on you. And you're saying, Lord, I don't know what's... the." this this broad, this vast and varied creation you've given me, uh, I in my own foolishness just want to die. What do you do? Verse 19. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He sent out his word and he healed them. Stop right there for just a second. He did what? He sent out his word and he healed them. Healed by the word. And he delivered them from their destruction. Here's what he didn't do. Get yourself, he didn't say, get yourself right. He didn't say, come to me when you got yourself cleaned up. No, he responded through his word in grace and love. And I hope you're seeing the repetition here. Some wandered. Some rebelled. Some were foolish. Then they cried out, Then they cried out. Then they cried out. And what does he do? What should we do? You see the repetition. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell his deeds in songs of joy. The foolish are instructed according to the word. God heals the suffering, even those who suffer for their own sin. They ended up almost dying because of their iniquity. They cried out in spite of their resistance. And he sent his word and he healed them. And so you have the wanderer, the one who is lost. You have the rebel, the one who is locked up in his sin. And you have the fools who who loathe life. And then you have some in 23 through 32, some who went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, His wondrous works in the deep. For He commanded and raised up the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. Those are the waves. They went down to the depths. Their courage, those who had gone to the sea, their courage melted away in their, notice, evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits' end. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. These are not just perils that happen. Hurricanes that hit a coast, tornadoes that tear up the plain, those, those things happen. These are those who went in their own courage with evil plights, and God used nature to get their attention. I think of James 4. Come now, you who say today and tomorrow will go to such and such a town, spend a year there, trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and vanishes. That word there is a mist. It's the mist that's on the sea. It's the waves that crash and there's a little mist that goes away. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him it is sin I think of the sailors in the book of Jonah What, what should you do should you find yourself overwhelmed by God verse 28 then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress do you see the personal God He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the child of men. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. Their rebellious soul is humbled in joyous peace. God comforts the troubled. I think of Jesus when he shows that he and the Father are one and that he is the power of the Father when he calmed the storm. And I, I think there may be a progression here. I think if you wander in your own wisdom you will find yourself shackled in sin, dying in your foolishness and overwhelmed by the power of God. But crying out to Him, we become satisfied, freed, instructed, and peaceful. And this all originates, this all originates. We, we don't even have to, to argue what date Thanksgiving originated with, this all originates from a personal God who goes, who literally seeks after wanderers, who seeks after rebels, who seeks after fools, and who seeks after the proud. A personal God. Dr. David Pallison is another one of my f- favorite authors, said it like this. Our God gets personal with His children. When we Christians say that we know and serve a personal God, we're usually making a theological statement, confessing our faith. The God revealed in the Bible is a person. In fact, one God in three persons. He's not an abstraction or an impersonal force. He is and does love, communion, intimacy, initiative, and cooperation within himself as well as with us. Because he is a person, he is named with many names, each name true. Each name filling in for us a picture of who he is and what he's like. He acts. He speaks. He is knowable, yet he is this unknowable yet unfathomable person. He thinks. He tells us what he thinks, so that we will know. And yet his thoughts are unsearchable, so that we cannot know. The revelation that we understand is like an islet of light in an ocean of light too bright to comprehend. What is mysterious is not darkness, but a brightness that our eyes cannot bear. Shining along a spectrum that extends far beyond what our eyes can perceive. Clay pots can never fully understand their potter, though they know many things about his shaping touch. He is wise. He actively rules. His providential hand is gracious and just. He gives life. He builds up and he nourishes. He He tears down and he kills. He renews. He does things a person does. And in the fullness of time, we are privileged to know him in personal, intimate, familial terms. He is our Father. He is our Savior and our Lord. He is our Holy Spirit. You and I are persons because he is this person. And our personal God is not simply the one who we describe and confess. So he is not just a, the, a theological concept. He gets personal. He who is speaks to us and acts purposefully purposefully on our behalf. He wholeheartedly is hands-on with us. All ministry depends on Him getting personal. We need His intimate presence, His animating voice, His powerful hand. In counseling ministries, His initiating presence, voice, and His hand of, of the Difference Maker. Father, please tend this vine. Lord and Savior, please lead us. Spirit, make us alive and fruitful. May it be... Your good pleasure to sow yourself. And he does. And here's where this hits us in this psalm. Because no two people in no two situations are exactly alike. God personalizes the way he acts and speaks. And when we describe and confess our God, it might sound static. But he's kinetically connected to each of his people. It might sound like he was a creator long ago. But he is also continually creating and recreating a people for himself. It might sound like he become the judge at the end of time, but he's also continually judging so that his plan for safety and glory of his people prevails. It might sound like that he was once a savior when he died and was raised long ago, and that he will again save when he returns in the future, but he is continually saving his sons and daughters by transforming them into the image of his son. He gets personal with everyone, with those who long for them and with those who wish they could wish him away. That is our personal God. And He comes to the wanderer. He comes to the rebellious. He comes to the sufferer. And He comes to the proud. He's a personal God. And He's also a sovereign God. That is the God of thanksgiving. Look at verse 33. This is God and His sovereignty. He turns rivers into a desert, springs of water into thirsty ground, a fruitful land into a salty waste because of the evil of its inhabitants. My sentence, God's loving judgment works against evil. In his judgment, he is still loving. He turns a desert into pools of water, parched land into springs of water, and there he lets the hungry dwell, and they establish a city to live in. They sow fields and plant vineyards and get a fruitful yield. By his blessing, they multiply greatly, and he does not let their livestock diminish. God's loving blessings work for good. And here's how that sovereign God works in salvation history. Verse 39. When they are diminished and brought low through oppression, evil, and sorrow, he pours contempt on princes and makes them wander in trackless wastes. But he raises up the needy out of affliction and makes their families like flocks. The upright see it and are glad and all wickedness shuts its mouth. The result of God's sovereign work in the world is joy to the upright, and the wicked are silenced. Both in nature and in salvation history, God is the God who reverses fortunes, and none of this is outside His grand plan for us to make our human choices. Jeremiah 18.5 says this, "'The word of the Lord came to me, "'O house of Israel, can I not do with you "'as the potter has done,' declares the Lord?' Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so you are in mine, house of Israel. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or kingdom that I will pluck up and break down that and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent from disaster that I have intended to do it. And if at any time I declare concerning the nation or kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I intended to do to it. Now, therefore, say to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am shaping disaster against you and devising a plan against you. Return every one of you from his evil way and amend your ways and your deeds. That was Jeremiah. There was another prophet. He said it like this, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. And blessed are are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn you, your name is evil. Rejoice in that day. Leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received (coughs) consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, you shall mourn and weep. And woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets." And so Jeremiah gives a balanced sermon. Jesus gives a balanced sermon. A balanced sermon on God's sovereignty in the midst of all of life troubles the comfortable and comforts the troubled. And so we come to this psalm and we see there's a God of varied grace who rules the world as He sees fit. And He deserves our thanksgiving maybe there are some of you here today who have forgotten just what it means to thank God. My mama always told me, though she didn't use Psalm 107 language, she said, count your blessings. And I didn't get it because I thought I knew better than mama. And now that I have kids of my own, I see that mama was right because mama was telling me a principle in accordance with scripture, that there is a sovereign God of multiplied grace and he calls us to give him thanks. So what should we do? The psalm ends with what we should do, verse 43. Whoever is wise. See, wisdom in Hebrew is, is not a wisdom of just information. It's information that leads to transformation. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Uh, let him attend to the fact that there are those who wandered in desert wastes. <clears throat> there are some who sat in prisons in darkness in the shadow of death. There are some who are fools for their sinful ways. There are some who in their courage and evil go down to the sea and just see how little they are. Whoever is wise, let them attend to these things. The things that God is the one who reverses fortunes. He is the one who's in absolute control. Let him consider the steadfast love of the Lord. And so friends, let us not run to Christmas without slowing down, even stopping for Thanksgiving. The wise will consider these things. In this season of Thanksgiving, let us consider the love of God and thank Him for His grace. You will see, if you go back over this psalm, each one of us differs in how God saved us. Each one of us had to cry out. Each one of us, though, if we cried in true heart of hearts, He delivered and restored us, and each one of us should be encouraged. So how should we apply this? Here's what I think we should do. Personally, we should ponder, think, reflect of who God is and what He's done. That's what verse 43 calls us to do. If you're here today and you know the Lord Jesus Christ, you should sing songs of joy let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of the deeds tell of his deeds in songs of joy to god we should offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving that we should take the time make the time in the presence of others to thank god for who he is and what he's done and to the world verse 15 let them thank the lord for his steadfast love for his wondrous works to the children of man That the children of man in this context is the world needs to hear from us how thankful we are. And I can think of no better time to do that than communion. And so I'm going to pray and if the men who will come forward will uh, pass out the elements. If you're here today and you know the Lord Jesus Christ, take this time to thank God. If you're here today and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, please let the elements pass. Father, thank you. that I was wandering in my own wisdom. In the wisdom of the world, I was going to make it to the top and you saved me. Father, in my wandering, I became imprisoned to my own sin. And you set me free. And Father, I was dying. Helpless. And in your good grace and in your perfect timing, you showed me Not only who I am, but whose I am. I thank you. And Father, I know that every person in this room who knows you could say the same thing. You're a God who hears the cries of your people, you're a God who restores those who've wandered off. May our lives be forever changed. May we never look at Psalm 107 the same. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: Participating in the Lord's Supper is a participation in remembrance. I wanted to read a little bit out of Hebrews chapter 10 and put this in context so we know what it is that we are to be um, thankful for and to. Starting in verse 1, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year Make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins, because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. First, he said, Sacrifice and offerings, burnt offerings, and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, although the law required them to be done. Then he said, Here I am. I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first covenant to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool, because by one sacrifice... He has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, This is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts. I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, Their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, there is no longer any sacrifice for sin. Therefore, brothers, since we, have through the, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from the guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. I want to take you back to verse 3 for a moment. The constant sacrifices that were made, they did not take away sin, but were a constant reminder to the people of their sins. And it was just a perpetual reminder again and again that same word remember or brought to remembrance that is used of the sacrifices and the reminder of sin is the same word for remembrance that jesus used to say as often as you drink this cup and eat this bread do it in remembrance of me that is don't have no israel had a focus on the sacrificial system itself and he said it is not the elements that can ever save you the bowls and blood of bulls and goats can never save anyone neither can these elements these elements don't save us it is the object to which these elements point and has always pointed even in the sacrifices of the old testament so it is the object to which these elements point that saves us that is the lord jesus christ let's pray lord thank you we we do know lord that you are a personal god and one who has personally come and through the salvation that you have brought to us through the holy sacrifice of your son Jesus we remember him and we remember through these elements that you have given us it is not the elements that can at all ever save us Lord but it is through those elements the object to which those elements point our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ we thank you for the the, the blood and the body that the Lord shared, shed on that cross for us so long ago we look back to that time and rejoice
2: God and King, His love endures forever, for He is good, He is above all things, His love endures forever, sing praise, sing praise, with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, His love endures forever. Before the life that's been reborn This love endures forever Have a great week.